Who is the thinker of my thoughts? Who is feeling my feelings? Am I my mind? Am I my emotions? Do I even exist? Does the practice of meditation help us answer some of these questions? These are the topics I'm discussing on the 71st episode of Patterson in Pursuit. Hello, my friends, and welcome to another episode of Patterson in Pursuit. This episode is like a rocket ship, so strap yourself in because we start comfortably with our feet on planet Earth, talking about the basics of the practice of meditation, and then by the end of the conversation, we have rocketed into outer space talking about some of the most important and difficult questions in the entire world, like what is the nature of the mind, the self? Can you have thoughts without a thinker? I'm very lucky to have an experienced meditator on the show, Mr. Oren J. Sofer, who's going to help me try to answer some of these questions. I started practicing meditation just a couple of months ago while I was traveling in Japan, and I've really loved it so far. In fact, the sponsor of the show for the past several episodes has been a meditation app called 10% Happier, Meditation for Fidgety Skeptics, which I'll tell you more about in just a minute. Oren Sofer has been practicing meditation in the Theravada tradition for the last 20 years. He even spent some time practicing in India and living for a couple of years at Buddhist monasteries. If the name sounds familiar, that's because Oren is one of the individuals that's interviewed and has his own segment on the 10% Happier Meditation app. So I reached out to the creators of the app to see if I could get an experienced meditator on the show, and they delivered. So thanks, guys. If you want to try out meditation for yourself, either before or after this interview, head over to steve-patterson.com slash meditate. You can get a free one-month trial of the app that my wife and I try to use every day. 10% Happier Meditation for Fidgety Skeptics. If you like the Socratic style of this podcast, my guess is that you'd like the Socratic style of that series as well. So I hope you guys enjoy this episode. And if by the end you're doubting your own existence, don't fret. Just keep asking yourself, who is it that is doubting whose existence? You might find yourself there after all. So first of all, Mr. Oren Sofer, I really appreciate you taking the time to talk with me about something that I know you're rather advanced in and I'm very new in. So I'm going to have some elementary questions for you, but thanks for talking to me about meditation today. Absolutely, Steve. The elementary questions are often the best ones. Well, that's what I found, you know, not just in meditation, but other areas of thought and other things, recreational things I've tried to learn. I've discovered that the basics are pretty much the most important. That's where you should spend 90% of your time. Then once you sort them out, you can get to more advanced stuff. So what I, where I want to start is really with the most fundamental basic of question that when we're talking about meditation, what are we talking about? What exactly is going on when people are meditating? Because from the outside, it looks like they're just sitting. But oftentimes when people talk about meditation, it comes with very spiritual or even mystical ideas that maybe there's something inside that's really deep or they're clearing their mind or it's kind of confusing. So I've only been doing it for a couple of months, but what I've discovered I think is not what I expected. But I want to hear from you, what, what is the actual meditation process? What's happening? Sure. Yeah, it's a good question. Uh, there are actually a, a few a few questions all rolled up in there. Um 
So the first thing I'll say is there are a lot of different kinds of meditation. So that word can refer to any number of uh, practices or ways of using one's mind and one's attention. Mm. So the kind of meditation that I'm trained in, uh, which is sometimes referred to as insight meditation, um, more more recently, its uh, form of it has become known as mindfulness meditation. That's probably the most popular widespread form in the public. Um, what's meant by that, a really good translation or way of talking about it is uh, as mental training. Mm. So if you go back to the original Buddhist texts, which is where not all, but a lot of uh, the modern uh, meditative techniques of mindfulness uh, stem from, one of the words that's most commonly used that we translate as meditation is a word called bhavana. And quite literally, bhavana means cultivation. Hmm. So we can understand the process of meditation as a process of cultivating our own mind and heart. So what are we actually cultivating? Uh, well, put simply, uh, we're cultivating healthy, positive states of mind. Mm. So right when you say that, that correlates with my two-month experience um, in meditating, is that's actually the phrase that I used um, unknowingly, is it's mind training. That's what it feels mm -hmm. like. And right. so how, from the outside, it's sitting. So how do you go from somebody just sitting on a cushion to mind training? Where's the bridge there? Right. Yeah. So... Um... So, so two further refinements before I answer that question explicitly. So the first, uh, it's really important for me to clarify that uh, sitting is only uh, one of several postures that we can mm. use for meditation. And I'm sure you know this, but all of your listeners might not. It's probably the most, the one that gets the most press, mm -hmm. um, but it's not always the one that's the most helpful or the most useful uh, for individuals or even for the same person at different times of day. So we can do standing meditation, walking meditation, and we can meditate in a posture that's lying down or reclining. So mm. it has nothing to do with the posture that we're in. It has to do with what's going on inside our mm. mind. Okay. The, the, the next point I want to make, and, and again, just to kind of um, be clear in our use of language, because uh, really when you look at meditation, uh, it's a, it's a pretty ambitious project to try to teach someone to meditate because you, you don't, you, no, no one can know what's going on in someone else's mind, right? Mm -hmm. You and I can talk about riding a bike or lifting a weight or baking a cake and they're very clear, tangible, observable, uh, behaviors mm -hmm. that we can both look at objectively and say, well, you know, am I following your instructions the way you intended? Uh, meditation practice, I can't look into your mind. Mm -hmm. So I can, and I'm using, I'm limited by language to try to describe to you a certain internal process, mm. right? So, so being clear with terms for me is very important when we, when we, when teaching and talking about meditation. So that the, the other term that I want to clarify is the term mind. Mm. And I know that you had some questions about this, which maybe we'll get to, but mm -hmm. again, when you go back to the origins of these practices, there's not a separation between what we would refer to today as our heart 
and our mind, the emotional heart and the more cognitive intellectual mind. These two are um, one and the same. They're mm. just different aspects of the same capacity we have as 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 human beings to feel, to think, to perceive, to be aware. So um, we're training not just our mind, but also our heart, hmm. which is which is why we can actually cultivate more positive states like patience or gratitude or kindness or balance. These are these are states that involve an experience of um, uh, emotional attunement and also physical presence. Mm-hmm. So all of that is included when we talk about training the mind. Mm-hmm. So then your question was what, okay, what's, what actually makes sitting still or using any of the other postures, you know, what, what makes that meditation right. versus just sitting somewhere with your eyes closed? Yes. So what is this internal experience that you're talking about or the internal training? What's, if I were to just sit uh, next to a, a Buddhist monk and they were just sitting. What's the? How could you describe the differences of the internal experience going on? <laughs> Depends on who you're sitting next to. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and 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 when you're sitting next to them. <laughs> um, yeah. So so those are two different ways of getting of getting at the question. So maybe I can answer the question about sitting next to somebody who's an, a you know more advanced meditator i think that some of the differences that that one would see or experience if you're able to kind of look into both persons minds were mm-hmm. um one the uh person who has more training in meditation their mind is going to be clearer the awareness is going to be sharper so if you imagine looking through a set of binoculars or a telescope mm-hmm. Um, two things are going to be different there. Number one, the focus itself is going to be a little bit sharper. Hmm. So what's actually being experienced is will will be clearer, more distinct in the mind. Hmm. And the the magnifying power of the lens is going to be stronger. so that what so that actually what's being seen, uh, there's a lot more that's actually being noticed. So that's hmm. one that's one domain which is going to be different. Another domain that's going to be different, which is important, is the response to what's being experienced. Mm. Uh, Generally will be uh, less automatic and uh, less reactive. So for example, if something uh, repulsive happens to emerge in the view of that pair of binoculars to go further with the analogy. So some thought or memory emerges in, in, in one's mind. Um, someone with less training in meditation, uh, there's going to be a reaction um, with a certain uh, in level of intensity mm-hmm. and a certain immediacy of being repulsed, of pulling away, of recoiling in disgust. And that's going to have... Uh, an emotional effect in the body. It's going to have a physical effect in the body. There are going to be neurochemical effects in the body and the Hmm. mind. In the meditator uh, who's who's trained their mind, uh, depending on the level of their training and depending on uh, the the current state of concentration and awareness – 
that happens to meet in which that experience happens to arise, mm -hmm. there's going to be less of a reaction. It, it will, if there's a reaction at all, it will be, uh, less intense and, uh, last for, for, uh, a shorter period of time. Uh, then the third, so, so there's, so we're talking about the, um, clarity and depth of focus. We're talking about a reduction in the intensity, frequency, and duration of reactivity. Mm -hmm. And then the third thing I think that would be different, uh, is the, is the presence. So there's, a, there's an absence of certain things, right? There's an absence of reactivity, but there's also a presence of other more, uh, positive, healing, healthy states of mind hmm. like compassion or kindness uh, or steadiness and balance hmm. so that's that's how it's going to we could say look different in the mind of someone who is untrained in meditation and someone who's more trained in meditation hmm. that's that's the continuum the, the the that begs the question and we can get into this if you want but of like well what's the how how do you get from A to B, mm. right? Mm. What is the actual training? Right. Uh, so let me, I will, I'll ask you a couple of questions and then we'll get right into that question. So when I think about my limited experience here, um, I spent a lot of time in my professional practice and uh, philosophizing. I spent a lot of time in thought, thinking. <clears throat> and I enjoy that. I'm, I'm comfortable with that state. But what I found when I started meditating a couple months ago is that the thoughts are totally dominating. So when you're talking about the experienced right. meditator and you know not reacting as strongly or not getting caught up in the thoughts or the emotions, that's something I had no idea how much I was doing until I kind of saw it. So I sit down and I, I just you know I'm trying to focus on one thing, my breath, and before I notice, but before I am aware of it, my mind is chasing different trains of thought and then going from here to there and playing with this theory and that theory, and I become aware of it and I go whoa, I'm just trying to you know, just focus on my breath or something like that. So right. that makes a lot of sense that through the practice of that training, you you are less like a dog chasing cars mm -hmm. <laughs> than I feel like when I'm sitting down. So then, yes, the next natural next question is, how how does that happen? What is the actual process? So the, the basic novice like myself, I catch myself uh, you know, chasing the car like I'm a dog, and then I go, oh, okay, right, got to think back to the breath. Is that is that what the practice is? Is that what the training is? Is just trying to rein in your your emotions, your your trains of thought? How are these? How how do you advance in this uh, practice? Yeah, that's a it's a important question. So I think it's more nuanced than just trying to rein in one's thoughts. And you've probably experienced yourself, as many of your listeners probably have as well, that it doesn't really work, it doesn't really work. <laughs> <laughs> or it's limited, you know, the degree to which uh, just trying to control one's mind actually works. Mm -hmm. um, so the process of meditation is, uh, is more, more subtle and nuanced it begins with a certain level of intentionality. It begins with a certain um, exertion of will, you could say, that, mm. you know, we sit down to meditate. Uh, and, yeah, absolutely, one needs a certain clear intention and focus to say, okay, you know, for the next 
20 minutes or however long you're going to meditate for. Um, my intention is to just feel my body sitting and breathing. Mm -hmm. I don't need to worry about yesterday. I don't need to think about or plan or work out anything about later today or tomorrow, you know, just going to be here. So that's really important to have that kind of clear intention. The process of meditation is about learning how we respond with what happens next. So when we sit down, we have that kind of intention, and then we begin to see basically the uh, the patterns and the habits of our mind mm. in a way that we may have never really noticed before. And what's so beautiful about the, the, the practice of meditation is that our mind is, is built to learn. It's built to uh, absorb uh, whatever we put it in. You know, it's like it's like a, a, a massive, uh, sensitive, advanced sponge mm -hmm. that's, you know, just a learning machine for patterns and uh, and um, relationships of things. So the very first thing that we start to notice is that it doesn't do what we want it to do. And then the next thing we start to notice is that the more we struggle to try to force it to do what we want it to do, the less we enjoy that and the more it kind of rebels. <laughs> so it's it's a little bit like ending up in a room and the walls you know, are at odd angles or gravity isn't functioning because all of the, many of the ways we've learned to accomplish tasks in life get from A to B. You know, you just put effort and energy in and you, you push and then you get there. Uh, those tend to backfire in meditation. Mm. So it's a different kind of learning. We actually, we start to notice, oh, well, what happens if I, if I just try to relax and let go when I notice that the mind is thinking for the 10th time about what I'm going to have for dinner mm -hmm. or why I have to call that person. And so what we, what we learn is through the feedback of how stressful it is to attempt to control experience. I'm going to say that again, through the feedback of how, that we get about how stressful it is to try to control our inner experience, the mind begins to learn by itself how to relax, how to let go, how to settle and be present. Mm. So, so our job becomes less one of doing something and, and much more of a subtle paying attention, feeling, sensing mm. what's happening. I love it. I love it. And, and this, again, I think the listeners are going to appreciate, you know, talking about my experiences being so new at this because I know a lot of them are probably tiptoeing into it as well. But what you mm. said kind of made me laugh. Um, you said, you know, I'm just going to sit down and you know, feel my body sitting and breathing. That seems like the simplest of tasks, like you right. sit, sit down and feel your body. I, what, okay, you're just aware of the sensations in your body. Well, if you've never done that, it is incredibly difficult for the first time, and it is stress-inducing. <clears throat> I remember, I, I still am, am dealing with this, especially the first time when I try to sit down and meditate. My uh -huh. anxiety levels go up. 
the stress uh-huh. level goes up. And then I go, oh, what am I doing? I got to do these other things. I'm just sitting down. Uh-huh. I'm not accomplishing. I'm not accomplishing my goals. And I get I get flustered, and I literally feel tension in my chest. And then the then the the mind starts racing more. And then I don't know for what reason. If I can get through, if I can break through that kind of level of anxiety, then I relax. And then I, yeah. I get into a more aware state. That that uh-huh. that a- anxious part kind of shuts down a little bit. It's a remarkable phenomenon that comes from the most simple of task, which is just feeling what you feel. Right. Yeah. So a couple things. Um, I would uh, I would put it a little bit differently and uh, see if you agree with me. Um, paying it, sitting, feeling your body, paying attention and feeling your body sensations or feeling your your breathing is actually quite easy. It's not difficult for a moment. <laughs> yes. <laughs> right. What's difficult is doing it for any, any length of time. It's the continuity of it. That's, that's difficult. Cause yes. right now, you know, you or I can pause for a moment and just feel your body sitting, you know, your butt on the chair, the weight, the pressure, the heaviness, not hard at all <laughs> right. right there, you know? <laughs> so why does that become such an excruciating task? That's that's the question because uh-huh. it's very easy to do for a moment. So um, the other thing that I, I, I would be curious to explore with you is this experience that you have around saying it seems stress-inducing yeah. <laughs> rather than rather than stress-reducing and what's going on there. So um, it's it's a really fascinating thing to study, and it's it's kind of at the at the heart of meditation to see like why am I so stressed out? Like I'm just sitting here, right. you know, like there's nothing going on, you know, what's keeping me from just being able to chill. Right. Um, so it can seem like, Oh, I was fine before I started meditating. <laughs> now I'm a total stress case. What's mm-hmm. going on there. Mm-hmm. Um, my, my experience myself and, and working with students, uh, and my understanding of the way this practice works is that in general, it's, it's not actually creating or producing any stress that what's, what's happening is usually, uh, one of two or three things. The most common thing that's happening is we are, uh, moving through our life with a certain level of you could say low grade anxiety or sometimes high grade anxiety <laughs> and stress there's a certain momentum in our nervous system uh that's just the, that's just the baseline but as long as we're engaged in activities that occupy our mind as long as we're talking to someone eating something reading something listening to something watching something typing something you get the idea mm-hmm. we don't actually notice how we're feeling hmm. because our attention is occupied by the activity mm. that we're engaged in now what happens when you remove the distraction of continual activity well all of a sudden the baseline level of activation in our nervous system becomes very apparent. Mm. So one of the analogies that I like to use is it's, it's like, um, it's just a certain kind of inertia. So if you, if you think about, uh, say spinning a wheel, 
And that's what kind of what we're doing all the time with our mind and our body is uh, every impulse to act, every everything that we do, we we add a little bit of of energy to the system. We add a little bit of spin to that wheel. We push it, it spins more. We push it, it spins more, and it keeps going. Now, just because you stop pushing it, is it going to stop spinning? Mm-mm. No, it's going to keep spinning a little bit for a while, depending on how fast it's been going and how much momentum it has. So there's a certain dimension or aspect of meditation practice that's this um, this kind of non-doing, where we study the way our mind keeps reacting, keeps pushing, keeps getting involved, keeps resisting, keeps trying to control experience. And each of those pushes stirs things up more. And when we're able to just let things be, let things be, let things be, slowly the momentum starts to work itself out on its own. Mm. And that might be what you're experiencing. You reach this threshold after 15 or 20 minutes or something where the mind just tires itself out. This is the <laughs> momentum that you've gathered over the last day or you know whatever it's been just settles out on its own and then the mind becomes a little bit more peaceful or quiet or calm. That's a, I definitely buy that theory. And it's a little bit scary to think of that I might be carrying around that level of anxiety. And it's really interesting to me because if, if you were to ask, you know, are you a stressed person, Steve? Are you anxious? I would say, no, I'm actually cool as a cucumber most of the time. But it's also the case that my mind is always occupied until right. the moment I fall asleep. And right. the moment I wake up, I'm thinking about uh, other things. So it's it's very possible that there's just a kind of constant numbness and distraction <laughs> that's taking place. Um, I, I would definitely buy that theory because the other day I had an interesting insight when I was doing the meditation and I, I was feeling that anxiety. I was feeling what it feels like, like in my uh-huh. chest. I feel it mainly in my chest. And then I realized part of the anxiety in my mind is trying to avoid the anxiety. It's like this is an right. uncomfortable feeling and that stresses me out, which makes me more uncomfortable, which makes right. my, my mind want to wander. And then a few times I've been able to say, don't run from it, Steve. Like you're anxious. Right. That's fine. It's there. It's not going away. It's like just embrace it. And then literally almost instantly, like within a matter of three seconds, I can feel the anxiety go away. It's like it right. just surfaces up and I accept it and then it kind of disappears. I'm assuming yeah. this is a this is a normal thing that people experience as they're learning meditation practice. Absolutely, and it's a really important experience. And it's not always the case that the anxiety goes away completely, mm. but but what we want to notice is when that when that resistance lets up inside, the anxiety will often reduce at least some. Mm. And even if it doesn't reduce, the experience of it will be less stressful. Mm. You know, mm-hmm. it's like when we stop tightening or resisting around it, it's not as much of a problem. And that sh- that shift, it's like we've landed in in the in the right orientation for meditation. It's like if you're learning to ride a bike, and for a few moments, you you're actually balanced and you're not wobbling anymore, about to mm. fall. Mm-hmm. That's 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 the the balance of meditation that you're that you're feeling. Mm. 
I want to I want to respond to what you said around like it seems like that theory is uh, plausible. I can imagine that's going on because it's not the only thing that could be happening. And you pointed to another way that the stress could be happening. And so I, I want to kind of lay out at least a couple of other options for the what could be happening, why there's so much stress when somebody sits down to meditate. Um, so the one that you mentioned is that the stress is a little bit self-generated through the resistance and reactivity and trying to control what we're experiencing in the moment. Mm. So we might sit down and we're not actually that stressed out, but we're trying to pay attention to the breath and then the mind wanders. And so we get a little bit frustrated. So we try to pay attention to the breath a little bit harder and then, we, and then because we're trying so hard, we start to get a little bit tired and then the mind wanders more. And then we try even harder and we get ourselves really wound up and tight. Hmm. And after 20 minutes, we're like exhausted and a nervous wreck and we were fine before. <laughs> so, <laughs> so does that mean that meditation is causing stress? Mm, I would say it's more like, uh, learning to meditate. We might have to go through spinning our wheels a little bit and understanding that we're not meditating properly. Mm. It's meditating incorrectly that's that's producing the stress because we're trying too hard mm -hmm. and then we're judging ourselves and reacting when what we think should be happening isn't occurring. I want to give an analogy because I, I see this principle come up everywhere and everything that I've tried to learn, it's about relaxation. There's yeah. a, so I do Brazilian Jiu Jitsu and there's a, my favorite choke is called the triangle choke and it's where you, you're, you are choking somebody with your legs. And the triangle choke only works when you have a measure of relaxation. If you're super tense and you're trying to force it, you're going to be like necessarily keeping that rope from getting snug. So it's yeah, the, yeah. It, it, the, the harder you struggle, if, you're, if your legs aren't in the right position, then you're just not going to be locking in the triangle. Once you've relaxed, once it's there, then you can squeeze and it's fine. But it's, it's like that, that tension is literally preventing you from accomplishing the thing that you're trying to accomplish. Right. And I, would, I, uh, I, went, to, I went to one or two BJJ classes and decided it was not for me. <laughs> <laughs> but... Uh, uh, I can extrapolate. And I would, I would imagine that, uh, in the analogy you're using that it's not a complete and total relaxation, that right. there's a certain amount of tone that's mm -hmm. actually required to the muscles, right? Yes. You don't want to be a limp fish. Exactly. And so it's the same thing in meditation. The kind of relaxation that we need is not a collapse. Mm -hmm. So most people hear the phrase I said before about, well, there's an aspect of meditation that's about non-doing. And they think, oh, great. I, you know, I can just totally, you know, be a complete, like you said, limp fish here and just not do anything. That's mm -hmm. actually not, uh, what what's meant by non-doing it's a very it's a much more subtle kind of um relaxation with a certain tone mm. to the mind and the, one of the analogies that's given that i like uh from the early texts is uh a like it's like holding a bird in your hands so if you're if you imagine holding a bird in your hands a small bird if you squeeze too tight what's going to happen you're going to squish it. That's right. You know, you're going to crush that bird. But if you don't, if you don't have any tone in your hands, if you hold it too loosely, it's just going to fly away. 
Mm-hmm. So, um, so that's the kind of uh, balance in our attention that we explore in meditation practice is this balance of tone, uh, alertness, structure, and relaxation. Mm. And that same balance is what we, uh, what we learn to strike in our body, in the very posture. And I can imagine that, you know, having been meditating for a couple months or longer now that you're, you're finding uh, that there are different ways that you can hold your body upright, some of which are more or less stressful. Mm-hmm. And that there are periods that you find where something kind of locks in, the alignment is there where you're upright, but you're totally at ease. (laughs) Yes, it's interesting you say that. Uh, Yes, I have. What I've noticed is remarkable is that it's almost as if my body does it itself. Mm -hmm. Because what I find is, um, so I don't have the greatest back. And a lot of times when I'm sitting down or, or when I'm aware of what I'm feeling, I realize, oh, I got bad posture. I need to fix my right. posture. And I feel that definitely when I'm, when I'm meditating. But every once in a while, if I'm, if I'm nice and relaxed, it's like my lower back fixes itself and puts itself in a proper position that feels That's much right. more comfortable. That's right. It's, um, the lower back is the key. And it, it takes time to learn how to actually turn off those muscles in the, uh, in the lower lumbar region of the spine so that the tailbone softens just slightly. And then that provides the kind of foundation or base for the rest of the spine to be upright and aligned. And then the structure of the skeleton is actually what starts supporting the body instead of the, instead of the, the, the large muscles. Hmm. Uh, and, and, and that very uh, balance and alignment in the body starts to support a place of real uh, easeful, uh, presence and focus in the mind. Huh. I didn't even know that was a thing. Um, well, let me, so I want to ask you one quick question and then I want to get into more metaphysics. we talked about the mind (laughs) internal experience. Yeah. Like I, I, am I'm fascinated by this and confused by it, but I really want to hear your perspective on it. Okay. I I, I just throw one more tangent in. I don't know if we have time. I, I, uh, there's one more cycle on the stress inducing thing. I I would love to go through if we have the time. Yeah, yeah. Great. So I want to acknowledge there's there's there are probably more reasons that I'm not thinking of now, but one other possibility uh that's very common for the stress that's experienced in meditation. Um it, so so the two that we've named so far is just kind of the momentum of underlying stress that we're carrying in our life that we don't notice. The second is a, a kind of self-created stress and frustration from trying too hard in meditation. The, th- the third it can be more of a, almost an existential stress that can come either from uh, being unfamiliar with whatever state of mind we're experiencing hmm. or a deeper layer of... Uh, uncertainty in the psyche. Hmm. So what I mean by that is it's not uncommon for people in meditation practice to um, actually become quite still or uh, quite focused or calm or quiet in the beginning. And this isn't everyone, but it's not uncommon. And that experience itself can produce a certain kind of stress. It can be Hmm. very unnerving. 
you know, for example, I, uh, I was talking to my mom who uh, has done a little bit of meditation and, uh, she was telling me that, you know, she, her, she could feel, uh, her, her heart beating and all of the blood kind of pumping through her mm -hmm. whole body mm -hmm. and the sensations everywhere. And she said it was incredibly unnerving. It was very disturbing to feel all of those sensations. Hmm. So that's an example of we can have an experience and because it's unfamiliar to us, we can become uncomfortable or a little bit jarred, uh, by it. Uh, and that, and that can be stressful. Mm. The other, the other thing that can happen is we can, uh, actually come into a place of real, uh, openness or honesty or vulnerability inside, uh, and sense our own mortality mm. or, or, or just the, the reality that life is so uncertain, you know, we can, we can feel the, the vulnerability of our, of our body, of our skin and, and that in and of itself, if the mind isn't prepared, if we haven't familiarized ourselves with uh, being that fully aware or developed the other qualities like equanimity and compassion that support our ability to be aware in those ways, that can be stressful. Mm. Yeah, and I can somewhat understand that from a philosophic standpoint, that when people are unfamiliar with thinking in just in a rational way about mortality, what happens when you die, what are you, uh, thinking about those things for the first time can be very stress-inducing because they realize uh, some of those thoughts can be uncomfortable, especially when you couple uncertainty right. with it, uh, which right. is just it's a natural segue to talking about the nature of the mind and internal experience and what we are. Um, so I'm, I'm going to have really heavy questions for you, and I, have, I do not have the expectation that you've got this all sorted out, and here we are. We're going to go away and know exactly all the true insights about the nature of the universe. Uh, Thank but, you. I'm glad. <laughs> <laughs> I, I am seeing, in the short time that I've been practicing this, I am seeing that you can get insights about the nature of what the mind is, maybe what the self is, and during the practice of meditation, more so than any other kind of inquiry that I've that I've seen. And in fact, I have quite a lot of conversations with people of the rational, skeptical, scientific disposition who even doubt the existence of the mind. They're so, I would say, um, unaware of sensory experiences or the, the experiential nature of what's, what actually is going on internally that uh -huh. they don't even think that thing exists, that when we're talking about what things feel like, it's just we're talking about superstition or something like that. Mm -hmm. So... The first question is, uh, comes from a, a realization that I'm discovering in real time, which is actually quite unsettling. So for my whole life, I have pretty much identified myself with my mind, with the, the kind of uh, language going on that's happening all the time. The thinking right, the, about the internal narrative. The internal narrative, the intellectualism. I've pretty much thought, well, that's me. When I'm talking, I am talking. But I'm seeing that might not actually be correct because I have a, I can kind of, I can see the contents of my mind as if it's not myself. It's like I'm looking at them or I'm listening to them. It's as if the mind is almost like another sense that you can, the, the sense isn't you. You can experience the sense, but there's That's a little right. bit of distance there. So what, That's so right. when we're talking about that, that part of the mind, the, the thinking, the rationalizing, 
what is that? That's not us? <laughs> yeah, good questions. You know, I, I think these questions really go to the to the heart of any true contemplative or spiritual practice. Mm. You know, am I am I my thoughts? Am I my body? If I'm not my thoughts and my feelings and my body, then what am I? Yeah. Right. And uh, the answer to those questions uh, is a, a little taste of enlightenment. <laughs> when we when we actually directly understand uh, those questions for ourselves and not in a cognitive or intellectual way, that, that that's transformative. Hmm. And there's there's a there's an aspect of that transformation that's actually you know nascent in what you're describing in your own practice, where you're seeing, you know, there's some insight. Like, wait a minute, if I can observe my thoughts, then I'm not my thoughts, because if I were, I could observe them. What's going on there, right? So, right. you know, that's it's starting to unravel what we take ourselves to be, the illusion that we assume we uh, we are um, begins to unravel in meditation. <laughs> and uh -oh. that can be stressful. What have I gotten myself into? <laughs> yeah, sorry, buddy. You took, you took the red pill, so... <laughs> Well, there's still an observer, right? There's, it seems like there's still a person that is observing, even if yes. he's not the thinker. Right. So there's a book by Mark Epstein called Thoughts Without a Thinker. Hmm. And uh, one of my first meditation teachers, who was also happened to be one of Mark's teachers, um, used to say, you know, there's, uh, there's doing but no doer. There's walking but no walker. There's thinking but no thinker. Hmm. So, um, the, uh, the, what about observing? Yeah, there's no observer. There's mm. just knowing there's just, there's just the knowing and the awareness. So that one of the questions you asked is like, okay, well, what am I? Right. So the, the sense of self that we have that each of us walks around with exists as an experience, but there's nothing, um, there's nothing to it that's actually uh, solid or that, uh, uh, that we can own. There's nothing, there's no center. There's nothing actually there. So it's more of a pattern, hmm. a changing, repeating pattern that isn't owned by anyone. There's no one there owning it. And those ideas can, don't really make sense. They sound, maybe they sound interesting, but until we actually see or experience it, it's just kind of a neat idea um, a couple of ways that I, uh, like to explain it. One is my own. The other is one of my teachers, Joseph Goldstein. So Joseph talks about the big dipper analogy. Maybe you've heard this before. So if you look up at the sky at night, you know, depending on the time of year and where you are on the planet, you can see the big dipper mm -hmm. and it's right there. You can see it now. Is there really a Big Dipper? <laughs> I would say there? no. It is no. a concept in our mind. Right. Okay, now the next question. Have you ever looked up at the Big Dipper and tried to not see the Big Dipper? Uh, yeah, I suppose so. And how hard is that? Well, I suppose it's not very hard if it's not something I'm consciously thinking about. Okay, well, that's great. 
So, but that that starts to get at the the shift in perspective. It's like once we have a, con- a conceptual overlay of experience, you know, and the the sense of self is a conceptual overlay on experience mm. that we have um, reinforced billions and billions of times since you know since the moment we became self conscious as a, as a small infant. So try to look at at phenomenal experience, at conscious experience, without that perceptual overlay. Very difficult. How could that be done? It seems like that the like the personal possessive quality of experience seems like it's my experience. That there's a unique yes. distinction between what's going yes. on over here and what's going right. on. I would say from your perspective. Right. And there is. I can't feel the sensations in your body right now. I can't experience the thoughts that are in your body now, no more than you can mine. Hmm. However, um, the sense of those, those, so those thoughts and sensations and feelings, those are occurring, you know, within your awareness or within my awareness, we could say. Uh, but there's the sense of self the sense of it's happening to me, mm-hmm. this is mine, is an afterthought. There's just the experience. The sense of okay. it belonging to somebody or indicating the presence of a person is an afterthought. It's, it's, a, it's not innate in the experience. And that's something that one needs mm-hmm. to see and experience directly for oneself. I mean, modern neuroscience is actually done a lot and I'm not a neuroscientist so I don't I don't I'm not up on all the research but from what I understand they've done some really fascinating work actually demonstrating and showing like the self as we refer to it literally from a scientific perspective and a neurological perspective does not exist mm. and that can be verified directly through our own experience with the training of meditation Okay, so uh, so I can entertain that conceptually. I don't think it's a, a logical necessity that the self exists. <clears throat> but would you say that even without a self, there is still a there is still a boundary of experience in the sense that there really is a unique perspective that my perspective in is some kind of objective distinction between your perspective. So we still have some kind of experiential boundary between us, right? That makes sense to me. Uh, but so two things. One, in response to that question, I don't really know because I haven't I haven't uh, developed the potential of my mind to its fullest capacities. Hmm. So I don't really actually know what's possible. And I and I know I know enough, which is very little, but I know enough to know that there's a heck of a lot I don't know hmm. about being alive and about the po- the potential of the human mind and consciousness. So hmm. I don't hold out the, I don't hold out that there's no possibility that I could somehow have some insight into your okay. experience. And I think that the boundaries of separation that we create between our minds and our bodies are are much more uh, porous and artificial hmm. than than we believe. Okay. What I, what I want to come back to, though, and clarify is that it's not actually correct to say that the self doesn't exist. It doesn't exist in an essential, independent, uh, solid way. Hmm. It doesn't exist in the way we believe it to exist. Hmm. So, you know, if you again, if you go back to like the Buddhist texts and so forth, you hear a lot about, oh, no self, there's no self. Well, actually, 
Uh, the Buddha didn't say that so much. And there's a few places in the early texts where someone actually asked him point blank, and he wouldn't answer. Hmm. He wouldn't say, yes, there is a self, or no, there isn't a self, because it's much more subtle than that. So what he would say, and, and the, the line of question that he would use, is he would point out the very thing that you're saying, is he would point out, okay, let's take the body. Is the body permanent? Does it last forever and not change? No, not the case. It ages, it gets sick, it falls apart, okay? Uh, are, are, is something that changes, falls apart, uh, can't be controlled by you? Uh, is that generally something that's uh, pleasurable and uh, reliable, or is that something that's uh, not reliable and potentially... Uh, unstable and it's okay well yeah that's not so reliable not so stable probably not uh, pleasurable in all circumstances mm. great so is something that's impermanent changing unstable and unreliable is that something that's fit to be considered who or what you are i'd no. say no and so then go through all aspects of your phenomenal conscious experience your thoughts your feelings your emotions your perceptions uh, and consider, are any of those worth identifying with as me or as mine? They're all, they're all changing. They're all unstable. They're all unreliable. I think the contents of my experience, that is, I think that's true, but there mm -hmm. still seems to be a, almost an inescapable possessive quality to it that, that when I think about all of the past experiences that I've had that... Mm -hmm there's still me there, even though I'm not having the experience, I kind of have a different body, my cells, a lot of my cells have died. It still feels like, well, there's the me yes. is still there. Right. And that's the piece to investigate. Mm. That ex the experience of being me exists. Okay. But, but I am not real. Hmm. The experience, the experience that we have of, but it's me, it's Oren. It's like my body and my life and my past. And like that experience is actually occurring. Mm -hmm. But when you look at it closely enough and deeply enough, it's empty. There's, there's actually nothing there. It's just coming and going quickly. It's just like a, a bubble in a stream. What would you say is the the cause or the reason for that illusion because that at least in me i know some people have different layers of of or like different levels of how strongly they feel like they're a person uh in their past and some people don't feel like they're the same person as they were in the past for me i feel it very strongly but mm -hmm. if it's if it's illusory if there's not there's not kind of a independent object there what why would it be why is it happening uh because it's uh, helpful to function in the world. <laughs> if you didn't have that, you'd you'd be insane. <laughs> you'd be psychotic. It's it's a useful distinction because we live in a world of objects and and time and place. You know, you and I couldn't have had this conversation if we didn't have a sense of an independent self and understand what three o'clock Pacific time meant. <laughs> you know, but if but if you look at it, time is an interesting one. You know, where is three o'clock? Show me three o'clock. Hmm. You no, know, where is Wednesday? You know, 
it's not Wednesday, it's Monday, but you know, <laughs> these, these concepts are, uh, mutually agreed upon, uh, and they exist in the sense that we, uh, we define them, but there, but when you look at it closely, there's nothing there. So the, the classic example that comes out of ancient Indian thought is, is, uh, the example of a chariot. So we could take a car today and you can say, okay, you know, do you, do you and your wife own a car? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. So you have a car. So now I say, okay, if I take the bumpers off, is it still a car? <laughs> uh, Are the bumpers the car? No. Uh, right. Yeah, so, so we could go through the entire car and take the entire thing apart and say, okay, where is the car? At what point does it cease being a car and become an, a, a bunch of parts? Mm-hmm. Is but is there a car? Yes. But does but does the car actually exist as something real and independent? No. It's it's a it's a constellation. It's a changing constellation of all of its components functioning together. I love that uh, analogy. That's like the ship of Theseus in uh, Greek philosophy. I'm very, very persuaded for ordinary objects, for uh, mm-hmm. tables and chairs and cars, 100% there. I think that the, a, a car is a concept in our mind, but I do think that there's a there is an external referent in the sense that I think there are bits of matter that are in space that are located uh-huh. in a particular way that we reference as a car or a table or a chair. So there are fundamental bits, I think, out there. Are there? Those, that's my guess, yeah. That's how I... Doesn't quantum physics actually point to the fact that what we call <laughs> matter is actually mostly empty space and probabilities? And when they try to pin down an <laughs> electron, they find that you can't actually know its location in a specific time. Mm. There one yes, there's one interpretation of of quantum physics, Copenhagen interpretation, but there are others okay, which preserve so you the know more about it than I do. <laughs> well, well, so so let's say it's even the case that there is no external world. Let's say the only thing that exists is the contents of my experience, and they don't they don't refer to anything external. To me, that I I still maybe it's because the the strength of this illusion. I can't get over this idea that it's me, it's I. I'm a I'm a person. I'm not my I don't think I'm my mind. I don't think I'm my body. I think I'm like a perspective. I'm like a I'm right. a, like a like a perspective of awareness that seems sure. to be constant. Do you think sure. that's still is still a kind of a conceptual construction? I do. Yeah. So the where where this and these are not questions that are unique to you and I, and uh, I'm not a philosopher, uh, I'm a meditator, and so my ability to actually kind of, uh, there, there are others who could go there with you in, in, the, in the way of philosophy and metaphysics and uh, kind of, um, you know, ex- explore the, uh, the limits and the contradictions of certain positions, right? Mm, and mm. and. What's fascinating to me is the very questions you're asking. If and you, you know, again, this is my this is my training. If you if you go back and you look in the uh, records we have from the conversations the Buddha had with people 2,600 years ago, those are the very <laughs> questions he's answering. Where you know, where someone is saying, "Okay, well, then, am I not then this very uh, uh, changing experience of knowing from moment <laughs> to moment?" You know, like that question was asked multiple times huh. and, and, you know, the, the Buddha points to it and says, it says, you know, look and see, you know, hmm. what, what is the result of identifying 
with that very awareness. And so this is where this is where the the teachings uh, that meditation practice, or at least you know the meditation practice I'm trained in, the Buddhist meditation practice, uh, really for me really shine because they're not actually intending to create a coherent philosoph- philosophical or metaphysical sy- system. Mm. Even even though people were later kind of constructed one out of the, the teachings that were left from the Buddha. But um, they're meant to help us learn how to live in a way that's uh, more clear, balanced, uh, enjoyable, kind, uh, and free. Mm. And so um, the question comes back to looking at our own direct experience and seeing, um, where do I suffer? Where does my stress come from? And what's the experience? What's the actual experience on a, on a moment-to-moment level as deeply and completely as I can feel it of being a person? Mm-hmm. And my experience is that when I look very closely, when my mind is still, when there's just experience, when there's just a flow of experience, that is less stressful than when there's a flow of experience and the sense of it happening to me. That that very sense of happening to me is a withdrawal and a separation Hmm. from the flow of life. And what happens when I separate from the flow of life, when awareness, uh, when an aspect of awareness uh, disconnects and contracts and identifies as anything, even as the one experiencing, then it places, uh, it creates a relationship to experience of control, resistance, and preference, where the pleasant ones I'm wanting to grapple onto and the unpleasant ones I'm wanting to get away from, mm-hmm. and that in and of itself is stressful. <laughs> so do you think that there's a potential here for a kind of um, like a, a philosophic plurality in the sense that if there is no self, then what you've just said is no problem either personally or philosophically the sense that there's no no objective metaphysical entity that is the self it's just a flow of experience and this is why when you are aware of that there's no it doesn't cause any stress but is it is it also compatible with the idea that there is some metaphysical thing that we're talking about that is the experiencer but when the experiencer is experiencing and he's not thinking about himself, and he's in the moment, you still get the same kind of stress reduction. So is there, can there be a metaphysical agnosticism about this? Um, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> could be. <laughs> I think, yeah, I think for me, um, uh, that, that phrase, a metaphysical agnosticism, seems... Uh, seems helpful to just say, well, you know, don't know, you know, I think what's more important is, is actually asking the question and, and, uh, and looking deeply than, uh, coming with a presupposed answer. Mm. So again, I want to just, uh, 
I don't want uh, you or your listeners to leave here with this, you know, puzzling uh, conclusion. Well, you know, Oren J. Sofer was saying that uh, meditation teaches us that there's no self because that's actually not what I'm saying. And it's, mm. it's a really problematic position that can lead to a lot of uh, um, uh, difficulties and problems, actually. It, it's one of the ways that the, the teachings of meditation are most commonly misapplied and mm. misunderstood. We hear something like that, and so we say, well, my emotions don't matter. Mm because there's no self, you know, and my needs don't matter and your needs don't matter because there's no one there. You're just creating attachment. You're just, you know, and my actions don't really matter because if there's no one here, then there's no one doing anything. And those are all very, very dangerous, uh, ideas that are actually not, not in any way aligned with the, uh, understanding or framework of meditation, mm. uh, as I teach and practice it. And as you know, those in my community do. Mm. Uh, but, but it's rather about a more, uh, a more flexible and deeper understanding of what we refer to as ourself mm. and, and what we call, what we experience as ourself and, and being able to see that it's much more fluid than we think it is. Uh, it's much less solid than we think it is. And our preoccupation with our sense of self is one of the primary things that creates pain and suffering and difficulty in our own life, in the lives of the people around us and on the planet. Mm. Very well put. That's a wonderful note to end on. I appreciate you making that disclaimer because this is also true, not just with meditation, but with all kinds of different philosophies, and you see it especially pronounced in any religious or spiritual traditions, that when you when some of the basics are, are wrong or some of the interpretations are wrong about just, you know, in this case, there is no self, oh, is that the insight of Buddhist teaching? And if you run with that idea, it actually can, can cause personal problems. You can have a, a kind of a screwed up worldview, and I would say an incorrect metaphysics. Um, so th those kind of subtle clarifications, I think, are very important. Well, I really appreciate your time, and I, I can vouch to say that there's, there's definitely um, truth to be found here. And I, I wish I had discovered meditation about 12 years ago when I started really pursuing the truth um, passionately, because it's so clear that there's this... <laughs> There's insights to be gained about the mind, the self, the world. Um, there's there's an ability to become happier yes, and regulate absolutely. your own emotions. So um, this has been great. You're welcome, Steve. Yeah, yeah. I want to offer just one kind of parting uh, quote from uh, from my first teacher that seems quite uh, appropriate to our discussion. Uh, just going back to this uh, understanding of meditation as a form of cultivation or mind training. And uh, he was very fond of saying, if you want to understand your mind, sit down and observe it. Yeah, perfect. And that's really what we're doing when we meditate is we're, we're learning by observing. And in order to observe, there's certain things that are necessary. We have to actually, we keep the body still. We learn how to let the thoughts settle down and we just look, look closely and clearly. Mm. That's a very empirical and I think open-minded, I think correct approach to something as tricky and difficult as what the mind is. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, Oren. 
You got it, Steve. Take care. You too. All right, that was my interview with Mr. Oren J. Sofer. I hope you guys enjoyed it. If you want a taste of meditation for yourself, head over to steve-patterson.com slash meditate. Now, as for answering these questions that were brought up, I don't really have solid certain answers. I have suspicions, but I'll reserve those suspicions and analysis for a future interview breakdown. All right, guys, that's all for me this week. I hope you enjoy the rest of your day.